It, it is, uh, wow. Um, it's amazing to be here because I recognize like maybe only half of you and that would be maybe stretching it. And so it is, I'm, I'm literally just blown away by the fact that this church is still here after 10 years. Um, it's, you know, it's just an exciting, it's an exciting time for the church. Uh, it's an exciting time uh, to be a member of our family. I would tell you that I think that our family right now is probably doing better than we have done in years. Um, our oldest daughter, Josie, who some of you know, is now married and she lives in Bryan, Texas. Her husband is getting ready to go to medical school. Uh, so that's exciting. Our second oldest daughter, Libby, is in art school in St. Louis. She's a junior. She's also doing very well. She spent the summer in Vienna uh, honing her craft of art. Uh, Owen is a senior in high school, and he is trying to just get through high school at this point because he is ready to go on tour this summer with some major hip-hop artist or some electronic music artist because he's got a pretty kind of flourishing up-and-coming videography and photography um, business. He flew back from Washington, D.C. to work Lollapalooza and was on stage with a couple of big artists. So that's part of the parenting handbook that they don't give you when your kid is in high school and, you know, having to stay out till three o'clock in the morning to work, you know, shows for hip-hop artists. I don't really know what you're supposed to do with that, but it's happening, and so it's, it's good to be Owen. And Phoebe is loving being in, in Washington, D.C., because the first couple of people that she babysat for, they said, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I, I can't pay you that. And Phoebe tried to defend herself. She said, well, you know, that, this is kind of what I, I got in, in Chicago. I was, you know, I'm a, I'm a hospital-trained babysitter. And they're like, oh, I think you misunderstand. Uh, it's not that I'm, gonna, I'm not willing to pay you that much. It's I'm not willing to pay you that little. Um, this is Washington, D.C., and everything is expensive here, so you're going to have to make a lot more money. So Phoebe just wants to babysit all the time now. <laughs> She's like always ready to make like $25 an hour. It's just... Owen's like, why can't I babysit? <laughs> so it's, you know, my wife is getting ready to re-enter the labor market. Um, and so one of the things that she's struggling with is like what to put on her resume because she'd been out of the workforce for, you know, 23 years. She's like, well, you know, long ago I worked in the banking industry and, you know, I've had a few jobs. And I said, well, I think you're misunderstanding the way your resume needs to look. On your front page, you need to have on there leadership development, uh, accountant, financial systems organizer, uh, structures and systems developer. She's like, when did I do that? I'm like, for the last 12 years, we planted two churches. Like, they would not be here without all of this work that you did. And, and look, look at what we have today to show for it. Like, it's, it's exciting to be one inch in hope. After the service, you guys are going to be talking about a new building. That's incredible. That is amazing. That is exciting. The other day, I, I went to uh, Shelter House, which, you know, when I was here, I, I partnered a lot with them, and the director there, Chrissy Canganelli, took me to a new facility that is going to be for uh, rapid rehousing. So it is always less expensive to just take homeless people and just put them in an apartment than it is to try to leave them on the street. And Shelter House is, is doing that. Uh, when I was here, our, our church was involved in partnering to get a new uh, 
temporary shelter that opened up every winter uh, so that homeless people didn't freeze to death. And that now is a standing thing and going forward. And so it's so this church has done so much to bless this community. It is absolutely amazing. And I am excited. I'm excited about everything. And to think that when we came here 10 years ago in the midst of a flood, that this would be what we have to show for it. And it's great when things are exciting. It's great when things are awesome and when things are going well and when your budget is being hit. It's just, it's wonderful. But it's not always that way, is it? I mean, it would be great if it was, but it's not. When my wife and I were still living in St. Louis preparing to come here, we had plans for the way things were going to go. I had a nice five-year plan all written out that did not involve a gigantic flood in Iowa City and Cedar Rapids when the church had no building, no money, and no people. And we had to start doing disaster relief. And if you're ever thinking about planting a church, what you want to try to do is avoid the largest economic downturn in the history of the country in like multiple generations when nobody has any money to donate to a church plant in Iowa City, Iowa. And so it was hard. Not only is One Ancient Hope perhaps the most exciting and the most joyful thing that I have ever been a part of, I would also say that it is also perhaps the hardest thing I have ever done and was the source of a lot of suffering and pain for me and for my family because it's just, it's just hard to do something new, to, to plant something new when, when there's so much uncertainty. Sometimes things are good and sometimes things are really hard. And sometimes the difficult times last just a really short period of time and sometimes they last a long time. And sometimes it's just something that happens and sometimes it's something that needs to happen. But the great news is, is that when we find ourselves in those times of trouble, whether they seem random or seem like they're very necessary, and whether they're short or whether they're long, we are not alone. We share a story that is common to man that is common to the people of God. And so we can take comfort in the fact that we're, we're not alone. And fortunately for us, we can learn from it. The passage that we're reading today and that we're looking at is in Isaiah chapter 40. And it comes at the turning point, kind of the linchpin of Isaiah, where the first 39 chapters are telling the people of God, hey, guess what? I told you what to do. I told you how to worship me. I told you how to care for the nations around you. And guess what? You didn't do it. In fact, you failed at it miserably. And the warnings are over. Now you're going to go into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. So kids, you kind of know what this is like, right? In a lot of your houses, they have something called time out, right? So this is Israel being told, you're going to have a time out, but not like one minute or two minutes, but 70 years. So if you're like five years old or six years old, imagine sitting in the corner in your time out until you're 76 years old. That's how long your time out is. And maybe at some point in the middle of that time out, you're thinking to yourself, I wonder if my parents have forgotten me. I've been sitting in this corner for 70 years. That's a long time. I wonder if anybody's ever going to come back and like let me out of, the, out of the, uh, the corner here looking at the wall. 
And so this is what Israel is faced with. They're about to undergo a very, very difficult period of time for a very long time. And the question they're asking is, will this ever end? And this is the good news that the prophet gives them in verse or in chapter 40, he tells them, yes, I am coming for you. I, I am going to redeem you. When we find ourselves in these, in these difficult times, the things that we want to know are, is this going to end? Is, is it going to be okay? What we're looking for is we want to be comforted. We want to be comforted. And God gives people comfort when he says in chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So if we're honest with each other, we have all been at this place. We've all been at the place, and it says in verse 27, where we say... My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. And we're kind of angry because the suffering's gone on too long, the insecurity, the fear. And so we're like, my way is hidden from God. God doesn't know about me. God's forgotten me. I'm just going to sit here in the corner and and no one's ever going to come to get me. But into that, God sends the prophet and tells the prophet, say to the people, comfort, comfort my people. Your warfare has ended. Your iniquity is forgiven. This is, this is the gospel. I mean, I, we could just stop right here and say the good news of the gospel is that God promises, even in the midst of discipline and sending the people into captivity, that he is going to redeem them that he is going to forgive their sins, that he is going to bring them back and fully restore them, that that is going to happen for sure. And that is good news. That's what we base our faith on. The difficulty, of course, for the people of God is they are on the long front side of this promise. They haven't even gone into captivity yet. And so they're being told, tell them that their captivity has ended that their iniquity has been pardoned, and yet they haven't even gone through the hard time yet. And so perhaps the question that they're asking, and perhaps the question that you find yourself asking when you're in the midst of a difficult time, is can the promises of God be trusted? Because at at this point, all the people of God have is a promise. That's all they've got. And sometimes we feel that that's all we have. And so the biggest question we have is, can the promises of God for our redemption be trusted? And the good news is they absolutely can. And this passage is a proclamation of that. The promise of redemption, this passage tells us, is testified to in our shared history. Look at what it says in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right hand disregarded by God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The prophet asks them a question. The Lord says, go to the people and ask them this question. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Do you not know? Have you not heard what? Have you not heard about the Lord? Do you not know who he is? Do you not know what he's done? By the time the people of God are, are, are living out Isaiah, it's not like their story just started with God. Their story's been going on for generations, for millennia. 
They have the promises that are made to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham. Go from your country to a place that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will flourish you. To Isaac, to Jacob, to David. All these promises that God had made had come true for Israel. And so the question that the prophet's asking them is, how can you say my way is hidden from God? How can you say that? Do you not know? Have you not heard the wonderful story of God's faithfulness to redeem his people and how every promise that he has ever made up to this point have always come true? Don't you know? Don't you know your stories? Because stories are important. Stories of God's success in our lives, of God blessing us, of God encouraging us, of God giving us hope are important. So I want you to think right now of a time when you have definitely felt like the Lord has really done something for you. And it was kind of amazing. And you're like, yeah, you know what? At that moment, I really felt like that was the Lord's answer to my prayer. Whatever it is, whatever it was, that that was the Lord's answer to my prayer. Think about it for a moment. And now I want to ask you, are there ever times when you, you're feeling downcast or like you're in the middle of suffering or insecurity or fear, when you look back on those times and say, oh, wait a second, there was a time where God did something for me, where he answered my prayer, and you draw encouragement from it. And now I want to ask you another question, because as you were gathered here together as a church of believers, have you shared that with somebody? Because there are times when the thing that we have gone through, where we know that the Lord has blessed us, where the Lord has answered our prayer, part of the purpose of being in community with each other is that we share that with the person next to us so that even though they're in the middle of suffering and they're in the middle of difficulty and they're maybe not thinking right, that we say to them, you know what, the Lord has answered my prayers multiple times in this way. And they can be encouraged by that. You know what? The Lord is faithful. Yes, I'm hearing stories, not just from the Bible, about the Lord being faithful, but I'm hearing stories from my friend, from my neighbor, about how they went through a difficult time, and the Lord was faithful to them, and that is part of how we know that the Lord can be trusted, because we have a shared history. We have a shared history, and part of the shared history is that we tell the story of how God redeems us. It's important to remember these stories, these promises when they have come true. And it is campaign season. And in campaign season, there are two things that are happening. Candidates are making promises. Left and right, they are making them. And if they are incumbents and have been in office for any time, their opponent is running ads reminding you of the promises that those candidates have made to you. They are absolutely not reminding you of the promises the candidate made to you that came true. They are reminding you of the promises that the candidate made to you that did not come true. Because they want to say, see, this guy makes promises and they don't happen. So you shouldn't re-elect him because he's a guy of empty promises and he doesn't come through on his promises. And I serve in Washington, where every single office I go into, whether it's a congressman or a senator, the one thing I know about what's happening in that office is, one, they have made promises to their people, and two, a number of those promises have not come about or at least not come about the way that they want it. This is a true thing. It just happens. And they want to do what they said. They really do. Many of them want very badly to do what they believe. They believe that their promise is going to bring about the flourishing 
of their district or of the nation or of the world. The difficulty is that the person sitting next to them in Congress or Senate has made a promise to their constituents which is the opposite of the promise that they made to their constituents, and so now we have conflict. I don't know if you watch TV or not, but there's a little bit of conflict in Washington occasionally. <laughs> a lot of it has to do with the kind of promises that people have made. And so why, why can't they make good on their promises? Because they lack something that God has. Part of the reason that we can trust in the promises of God is that God's promises of redemption are assured by his power. That God's promises of redemption are assured by his power. Look what it says. It says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. That the reason that we can trust in the promises of God is because God is not like any politician that we've ever elected. He actually has the ability to make every single promise that he ever makes come true. There is no one, there is nothing, there is no coalition, there is no lobbyist, there is no PAC group, there is no one and nothing that can stand in the way of God making good on his promises. And this is encouraging to us because without this element, without this power to make them come about, we have promises that we cannot be assured are going to happen. They are just hopeful, maybe, I don't know, we'll see how it works out. Hopefully everything lines up and, you know, we can get it through. God does not operate that way. God operates from a position of power where he says, these are my promises and I have the ability to make them come true. And this gives us hope. So we have this shared history, this, this shared story, this, this shared knowledge of, of God making good on his promises. And we have God's power making good on his promises. But most importantly, we can trust in God's promises because God's promises to us flow out of his covenantal love for us. So if you look at this passage again, you notice what it says here. It says, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. But notice this phrase. If, if you're looking in, in Scripture, or you, you have your Bible there, you'll see that it says the Lord, and it's, it's capitalized. There's, it's all caps. And as you probably know, if you've been attending this church for any period of time, you'll know that in the Old Testament, whenever you see the word Lord and you see it all capitalized, what's really happening there is that the author has written down the word Yahweh, the proper name of God, that God has a personal name that he gives to his people to be known by. And it's not just, just call me Yahweh. It's that tied up in this name is this idea of that God has a covenant. That God had entered into an agreement with Abraham. A covenantal agreement to redeem and to restore him. Some other time you can go back, you can look at this happening in, in Genesis 15 through 17. You'll see this, this covenantal ceremony, basically, where Abraham and, and the Lord agree that they're going to have a covenant. And the way that it would typically happen in the Old Testament is the two kings would grab animals and they would split them apart and they would hold hands and they would walk down the middle reciting the terms of the covenant, the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. And the same happens here, except in this case, the Lord causes a sleep to fall on Abraham. And the Lord alone walks through the animals. 
And what the Lord is saying is, the terms of this covenant are on me. I'm going to uphold both sides of it. Because you're human. And you're sinful. And you're not going to be able to keep the terms. So both sides are on me. So if you violate this covenant, blood will be shed. And I'll take care of it. And here's the great news about this covenantal love. It never stops. This is what it says. He does not grow faint or grow weary. This is so unlike us. That God has a covenantal love for us. A promise to redeem us. To restore us. That's why over and over again in the Old Testament it says his steadfast love endures forever. That there is nothing. And believe me the people of God tried everything to wear God out. They literally tried everything they could think of to wear God out. To get him to his wits end. And God's like, you know, there's going to be discipline, there's going to be suffering, but you cannot wear me out. I can't be worn out. I can't, I can't be exhausted. My love for you never ends. I want to ask you, have you ever had a relationship that you've been a part of that's just, quite frankly, been exhausting? Where the other person in this relationship just kind of is like... Oh, I have to go to coffee with this person again. I have to work with this person again. I have to be on this person's team again. I just, I don't know if I can do it. It's just so exhausting. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever had that happen. If you've ever had a relationship like that. Oh, look, most people. Yeah, see, that's how it goes. Have you ever wondered if that person's you? I won't ask for a show of hands on that one. (laughs) But sometimes that person is us. We're that person. About about two months ago, uh, I went to the doctor. And I had had needed to go to the doctor for, for a while. I'd not felt right for probably about a year. I'd had a pain in my side that was kind of odd. Uh, and it just seemed to be not going away. But there was a lot of stuff happening in my life. First there was, you know, Christmas. I had to, I had to relaunch a church in, in Chicago to get them set up to kind of move forward. And then there was Christmas. And then there was a daughter's wedding. And then there was birthdays. And then there was an anniversary. And then there was moving to Washington, D.C. And there was never a good time to go. And I didn't want to go to the doctor and get the news that I knew was coming in the middle of any of this because I didn't want to ruin anybody's joy. And finally my wife just said, listen, you've got to go to the doctor. I literally just, you got to go. So about two months ago I went to the doctor and I said, he said, you know what brings you in? And I said, well, so for about a year I've had this kind of nagging pain and it just doesn't go away and I'm just thinking about it all the time. and. You know, I'm very nervous about it. I'm very worried about it. And I'm pretty sure that I have cancer. Because I looked it up online. And I'm very convinced that I have this. And it had gotten to the point where I would go to work. I would go and I would have meetings on the hill. And I would, the person would be talking and I would be ministering to them. And I would be thinking about this pain in my body. And I would be, you know, what am I going to do? How is my family going to, you know, survive when this bad news happens? 
and I was tired. I was just exhausted all the time. So I'm at the doctor and I'm telling him this, and he's like, you know, give me your family, you know, give me your family history. So I tell him, I'm like, you know, everybody in my family's lived to be 90. There's no heart attacks, no strokes, no cancer, no high blood pressure, no diabetes, no nothing. He's like, how about you? Are you in shape? I'm like, dude, I could drop and give you a seven-minute mile right now, and then I could ride my bike for 60 miles and then do a mile swim. And I eat whole grains. And I don't eat jello. And he's like, okay, so here's the deal. I'm going to run a whole bunch of tests on you. But he said, I have one more question. Anybody in your family have anxiety? I'm like, anxiety? Are you kidding me? Uh, he's like, no, think about it. I'm like, well, let's see. My, my maternal grandmother did kill herself. Uh, my mother was homeless for a long period of time and, you know, was mentally ill by the time that was over. And my younger brother is on anxiety medication because of his childhood. And the question and the Q&A kind of goes on and on. He's gathering all of this information. He's like, what do you do for a living? I'm like, oh, you know, I'm a church planter. He's like, oh, I'm a Christian. Uh, what kind of churches do you plant? I'm like, well, I planted a church from scratch. Oh, okay. He said, here's the deal. I'm going to run these tests. They're going to come back negative. But you know what I think's happening? I think you have anxiety disorder. I said, well, that can't be. People with anxiety don't like meeting new people, and I love meeting new people. <laughs> people can't wait to meet me. That's what I convince myself of. And people with anxiety disorder don't like going to new places, and I love to go to new places, so I am not anxiety disorder guy. He goes, yeah, anxiety disorder people, you know what they also do? They constantly think they're dying. They constantly think that the world is going to end. They constantly think that everything is going to go sideways, that the bottom is going to fall out of them, that their kids are against them, that people are against them, that relationships are against them, and they just think that everything is going to fail. And my wife is in the room, and he says, you know, what do you think? And she says, I think you've just described my husband for the last seven years. And I said, I don't understand, how can this be? He said, basically, you are a functioning alcoholic. Meaning, not that I was an alcoholic, but that I had been dealing with so much stress and so much anxiety for so long that I had just figured out ways to cope with it that made it seem normative to me. And he said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna prescribe Zoloft for you. And let me tell you what, it literally changed my life. It was, it's like I'm living a different version of myself that I have not been in for seven years. My wife wrote me a wonderful note that said, you know, about seven years ago you disappeared and it has been nearly impossible to live with you. So my wife knows what this passage is about. It's one of my wife's favorite passages because my wife was asking her all the time, I am exhausted. I do not know if I can stay married to this guy because he is so difficult to live with. He is stressed out all the time. He is worried all the time. I don't know if I can make it. Seven years she went through this. It turned out that my wife had engaged my kids in a plan to manage me and my stress. How embarrassing is that? that they would have discussions when I wasn't at home about how to make sure that dad doesn't get all keyed up and dialed up. I was the person who was exhausting. And my wife loved me through the whole thing. But she would tell you, not perfectly. And through that whole time, God never, ever gave up on me. He was never exhausted by me. And that's so good. It's such good news. So let me ask, what are the things that make you exhausted? What are the things that make you want to give up? Maybe it's work. 
Maybe work's just really difficult. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's your husband or your wife. Kids, do your parents ever exhaust you and make you just ready to give up? Believe it or not, sometimes that happens. We forget that our kids experience the same emotions that we do. Sometimes we're exhausting them. That's why the Bible says, parents, don't exasperate your children. Parents are like, what, what, how would I ever do that? <laughs> Ask your kids if you're ever exasperating. They will tell you, uh, yeah, sometimes you're really hard to live with, Dad. Turns out that's exactly the case. I spend most of my days on Capitol Hill ministering to people who are exhausted who have been trying hard to bring about the promises that they made to their constituents that are finding it difficult to get their legislation from the House through the Senate or to get bipartisan support for it. They're working hard. It's very difficult. They have protesters coming into their office and screaming at them. Personal attacks against them. 22, 23-year-old interns are being told that they hate women, that they're in support of women being abused. They're just a 23-year-old student whose job it is to answer the phone, and they're exhausted in their job. Senators, congressmen, lobbyists, exhausted by what they're doing, and the job of ministry to state is to come alongside them and to encourage them, to encourage them and to support them and to lift them up. Here's the crazy thing about this passage. If you look at it, you say, what is the picture of people in this passage? Here's what it says. It says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. The picture of people in this passage is different than our picture of ourselves. The picture of people in this passage is people who are weak, people who are lambs. The thing is, is that we spend our entire lives trying to prove that we're not lambs. Because lambs are weak and they're kind of dumb. And they get in trouble all the time and we don't want to be lambs. So we spend our life trying to prove that that's not who we are, but we are. And we need to be comforted and we need to be rescued. And we need a shepherd who will come and find us. And we need a shepherd who will never give up on us. Because we do, we need to be carried. We don't just need to be comforted. We need to be carried. And this is what the covenant is all about. This is what the promise is all about. That God is going to, in his steadfast love, provide an answer for our sin, for our exile. And that it will not just be coming back from Babylon, but it is going to be Christ. And that that is the promise that God loves you, that God has redeemed you, that God has restored you. That is the hope that he gives you. And that in that hope, we're actually encouraged. Notice it doesn't say that he's going to make the problems go away. He just says, I will renew your strength. It says this, he gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and not be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. The name of this church is, was very purposeful. One ancient hope. One ancient hope. That the idea that when, when we were thinking about names for this church, somebody said, oh, how about New Hope? Because Iowa City has the old capital, and so it's the old capital but a new hope. And I said, well, that's great. The only problem is it's theologically wrong. 
Like, what do you mean it's theologically wrong? I'm like, well, the old capital was built in like the 1800s. The hope can't possibly be newer than that. The hope is older than that. So he's like, okay, well, old capital, older hope doesn't sound like it's going to work. I'm like, you're right, it's not going to work at all. Like, what can we do? And so we like batted ideas around and somebody said, oh, how about ancient hope? And I googled ancient hope and it turned out it was like sells incense online. So I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work. And somebody said, well, how about one ancient hope? Because there aren't multiples of it. And I said, that's it. That's, that's the name. One ancient hope. That the hope that we have today for our future is a hope that everyone before us has always looked to. It's the hope that has always been there. It's the hope that was promised in the garden. It's the hope that was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, to the people of Israel. This is our hope. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And this is why it says in verse 11, or I'm sorry, in verse uh, 9, go to the high mountains, O Zion. O herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. This is the good news that we have. It is so exciting to see so many people here who believe in the good news, who understand that we have a shared story together of God answering our promises, that we have a God who has the power to make his promises come about, and that we have a God whose covenant love will never end for us. He will never grow weary of rescuing us. And this hope, this hope is the hope that gives us strength, that gives us encouragement as we look out to our future, whatever that may be. Let's pray.